I know I'm a little bit biased because my wife is up here, but do you guys love our musicians? I appreciate them so much. Yeah. I've, I've actually been in churches where they've asked me to lead the music. So, I mean, there's a, there's a huge range of quality that can take place. And we're, uh, we're very blessed and lucky to have uh, uh, just an inordinate number of talented people here. And it's, it's great. I love hearing you guys sing together. It's, uh, it's wonderful. We are continuing our study in Luke this morning. And last week, we looked at the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And Brian hit home to us over and over again this concept of ownership and authority. Who exactly is in charge of this world? And who's in charge of our lives? And our story this morning picks up really right where that one left off in Luke's narrative and also continues many of the same themes of authority and ownership. I'm going to read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading from Luke chapter 20. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, We know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, They became silent. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present this morning in this place. As we enter this morning, we are distracted by so many things, not least of all our own national political scene and process that is taking place. And this morning, you have words to speak to us about the things that distract us, about the things that we get so caught up in that we fail to see you at work. So I ask this morning that we would be calmed, that we would be made quiet, and that we would hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us his truth and his love once again. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Before we get started, I, I do want to thank Brian for allowing me to speak on a passage about taxes and government in an election year. I... I don't know how I'm going to pay you back, but someday, someday I will. I just know it. One of the things that I hope uh, starts to ring clearer and clearer to all of us as we continue in our times together is that the ideas and assumptions that we all have about life are like tributaries of a river, tributaries that are being fed water from places that we might not even be able to identify. And it's difficult for us to, to actually sit down and think about how we understand life, how we understand God and politics and government and all of these big questions and say, oh, well, this patch of water over here in my life, in my reasoning, comes from this river and this patch of water comes from that river. It all just kind of gets mingled up. And one of the primary assumptions that probably almost all of us in this room share that we may not even realize is the idea that the world can be divided up into sacred and secular And this idea is really in in relative infancy. 
This distinction has only been around for a few hundred years, and I bring this up only to point out that our ideas regarding the role of government, and I don't mean the role of government in, in providing health care or eco-initiatives or legislating morality. I mean the idea of government itself, the right of government to exist, and, and the ideas of political spectrum on the left and the right. These are ideas that have only been around since the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. They've only been around for a few short generations. And it's really easy for us to not recognize that fact. And so then we read something like this text and we just, we just treat it anachronistically, right? We, we just take our ideas and we bring them back into this time and place where those ideas didn't even exist and we lay them over top. And, and guess what comes out on the other side? Jesus thinks exactly like we do. All of which is to say, as we look at this episode this morning, we have to be extra careful not to pull our ideas back and cloak Jesus in our own ideas of how the world works, but rather to allow his ideas to break through and tear down our assumptions of how the world works. Now this morning, we're going to look at this story by considering a question of kingdoms, the coinage of kings, and the real revolution. Luke tells us that the religious leaders, as they really begin to realize that Jesus is pointing a bony finger directly at them, they, they start to plot a way to get him arrested, but they have to do it in a way that doesn't turn the people against them. Remember, just a few short chapters ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem being hailed as the royal son of David. And so whether the crowds actually understood Jesus and his mission is up for debate, but at this point, he is still popular with them. And Luke hints to us something that's very interesting to consider, though we won't take much time to think about it this morning, is that very often where there are men with outward power there are men with inward fear. And he paints these religious leaders, these men who had all the cards in the deck, as being so fearful that they themselves can't even go to question Jesus. They have to spend, send spies to do it. And the question that they ask, the question that these spies ask, really has the power to undo everything that Jesus has been up to. It's an either-or question. It's yes or no. In whichever direction Jesus chooses to go, he stands to lose a lot. So here's what's happening. The tax that these men are referring to is not taxes in general. So if you were hoping that I would say this morning, yes, God wants you to pay taxes, or maybe more likely, no, he doesn't want you to pay taxes, sorry, we're not going to get there. This is not about taxes in general. They're referring to a very specific tax. It was a head tax. It was a tax that the Roman Empire leveraged, and they basically just charge you this tax for the, for the benefits of living under Caesar's rule. We've conquered you. You have the privilege of living in our empire. Now you owe us some money. And in Jesus' time and place, there was a lot of hemming and hawing over this issue. And it wasn't because the tax was an economic hardship. It was really about, uh, it happened once a year, and it was only about one day's wages for like the poorest of the poor. So unless you were super, super poor, this tax wasn't really going to throw you over the edge. The problem was what the tax represented. The people of Israel were supposed to be living in a theocracy. The Mosaic Code that they had been handed down was a set of covenantal obligations that really only made sense when the covenant was on. But for decades now, God's people have been living in exile. And we, we keep coming back to this idea, but this was really one of the foundational uh, perspectives of their culture was that they have been living in exile. Even though they re returned to the land, the Roman Empire still has control over them. And the tax was a reminder that Caesar was the lord of their world. 
And so there were three basic Jewish responses to this tax. These spies come in and they use something that the culture is already at war about to try and trap Jesus. And the three basic responses were this. One response was the response of the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were sort of the Amish of the ancient world. Uh, there was no electricity, so I don't know if that means they lived without fire or something. But uh, just, just think about these people as kind of, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with the, the worldly outward displays of power. They went and lived in the desert. They dressed funny. They read really old books. And so they, they refused to pay the tax, not out of rebellion, but out of a complete disengagement with worldly politics. They, in a sense, buried their heads in the sand and just dropped out of worldly affairs. The second response is the response of the zealots. Now, the zealots also refused to pay this tax, but not as a way to extrapolate themselves from a political involvement, but rather as a symbolic act, a way to vocalize their belief that Israel needed to rise up and overthrow the power of Rome. And then there was the third response, which was to pay the tax. And really, it was sort of giving a show of allegiance to the Roman emperor, saying, yeah, we get it. You're, you're the guy in charge. Here's your money. Ironically, and not at all lost on Jesus, it was the Sanhedrin. It was this body of, of Jewish religious authorities that were trying to trap him that actually collected this money from the people and paid it to the Roman Empire. Jesus' response, as we'll see, is going to be utterly different than all three options that his culture hands him. He doesn't disengage, he doesn't violently rebel, and he doesn't just acquiesce and pay allegiance to this empire. Many people saw that, that giving this head tax to the Romans was an act of collusion. It was an act of allegiance to this tyrannical empire. And in fact, when Jesus was just a boy, there was a zealot named Judas the Galilean. And Judas went around declaring to the people that the kingdom of God was on its way. It was coming. It was getting ready to break into the world. And he goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses out the temple and he tells the people, rise up, stop paying this head tax. And he's summarily executed. Do you see what hangs in the balance here? Jesus has just gone around declaring that the kingdom of God is on its way. It's about to break in. He has just come to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. There's only one step left for him to do. And so his enemies... The religious leadership decide to expedite the revolutionary process. Let's just ask him what he thinks. He hasn't said anything yet. Jesus, what do you think about this head tax? Is it right for us to pay it? And if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay it, the Romans say, off with his head. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay it, the people say, so much for a revolution, so much for the kingdom of God. One answer runs Jesus foul of the Roman machine. The other answer runs him foul of the people. And it's a question of kingdoms. Jesus, do you really believe the kingdom of God is coming? If you do, you'll say, don't pay this tax. Otherwise, you're basically saying that the claims of the Roman Empire are true. And all these hints about a revolution have just been empty talk. It's actually a pretty good question. But if you're like me, as soon as you read in Luke and they tried to trap him, you get a little bit giddy because I, I realize that these people are just like me. As, as soon as I think that I can corner Jesus and I'm, I'm bent down opening up the claws of that bear trap, I realize that I've just stepped into one of those really cool rope trap things, you know, and he's going to hang me by my feet from a, from a tree. That's what's about to happen. Jesus' response 
is simply, simply brilliant. And he begins by quoting Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. Show me the money, he says. And right away, this signals for us two things. One, Jesus is very subtly showing that the religious leadership of this community has already given allegiance. They have already colluded with the Roman Empire. They're the ones that have this money for the tax. But secondly, he's showing that he is a king without a quarter. He doesn't even have one of the smallest denominations of money, one day's wages. He has a very different type of coinage than the Roman emperor, as we'll see in a moment, because he is a very, very different type of king. When I was growing up, my dad was a big fan of the spy genre. He had this um, box of VHS tapes that he, he would tape spy movies off of TV, and I wasn't really allowed to watch them, so when my parents were gone, I would kind of break in there, and, and I was generally pretty bored. I didn't really get a lot of it, but some of them were really fun, and, and one of my favorite moves that a spy would do is when they would go to the phone booth Right? They're at the payphone, and they're checking in with central command or whoever it is, and they're getting you know, their orders, or they're trying to send a message or receive a message, and they have this conversation that is just absolutely meaningless to everyone around them. It's totally baffling. If anyone's listening in on the phone line, they're not going to get it. Because what happens? Well, either they have the book right there if they're not that good of a spy, or they go to the central library, and they find the book, and they wrote down all those numbers that they were told, Remember? And they, and they would get the book out, and okay, it was page 14, line 7, word 5. And then they would start to build this sentence based off these numbers. And they would build this meaningful idea. And Jesus is doing something rather similar. He reaches back into this old code book, the book of Hebrew scriptures that would be immediately intelligible to his Jewish religious audience, but at the same time would make absolutely no sense to any Romans listening in waiting to see if he would lead a revolt. So when Jesus says, whose image is on the coin, whose inscription, he's alerting his Jewish audience to the fact that there is indeed a battle of kingdoms taking place. There is a competition of claims happening here, unlike anything we saw in our political debates last week. Caesar put his image and his inscription on a coin, a coin that was minted out of his own personal treasury. And I say, personal treasury because, come on, he's kind of taken over a lot of people, so it's tough to say whose money it really is, but technically, it was Caesar's money. And in a world before printing presses or any other sort of mass media or immediate communication, money was the absolute best, easiest way to spread propaganda. And this is what the coin that Jesus asked them to to show him says. Caesar Augustus Tiberius worshipful son of the divine Augustine high priest. The one form of media that people throughout the entire Roman Empire touched, passed on, and looked at every single day claimed that the emperor was the divine son of God, the high priest that would enact the Pax Romana, the peace on earth. Does that sound familiar? Who else has been making claims like this? One of, one of the themes that we haven't really been hammering away at in Luke that we don't have time to go back and reinvestigate now, but it is very much there, is the bold way in which Luke sets up the mission and identity of Jesus as a direct counterclaim to the blasphemous, idolatrous claims of the empire. So what Jesus is not saying 
is you've got your secular world over here and your religious world over here and just fulfill your duties to both but keep them separate. He is not saying that. That idea was completely foreign to that culture and time period. No, when, when he says whose image is on it and when he says render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, every Jewish person in the room has ringing in their ears the psalm that we read earlier this morning. Everything belongs to God. Which God? The God who existed from the before the beginning. The God who spoke all things into being. The God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The God who said to his people over and over again, do not trust in your military strength. Do not trust in your material wealth. Do not trust in your educational rankings, your GDP, your national credit ranking. All of those things that you think make your nation amazing and great, I can wipe away like dust on a scale. Entire empires have risen and fallen, and they don't even register. And this same God has put his image, not on coins, but on every human being. He has commanded his people to inscribe upon their hearts the rule of his law. And all the Caesars, all the pharaohs, all the kings and princes, all the presidents and emperors and tyrants, all the revolutionaries and leaders of every people's movement on earth have all been met by the greatest tyrant of all, death, and they have all lost. Their graves are marked for us to this day as reminders that however far we may strive in our object of deification, we are all cut silent by the grave, except him except the one true God, the one true king, the one worshipful high priest, the son of the most high God, the only one who can bring peace to this broken world. And so, sure, render unto the empires of this world the things that are theirs. Did they mint, did they mint the money? Great. Give it back to them. After all, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. But give unto King Jesus the things that belong to him. But here's here's the clincher. For all of the, the seditious, treasonous things that are running between the lines of what Jesus is saying to the crowd, Jesus was and is unlike any other revolutionary this world has ever seen. Our revolutions are pitiful and unimaginative because we're content to assume that consumption of wealth and power are the point. So our revolutions are nothing more than a changing of teams. Did you see that quote that I put in from Mao Zedong? He's not saying power and wealth are bad things. He's saying we want to switch who gets them. That's all our revolutions are. We're just rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking Titanic. And it's really easy for us to sneer at the populist movements in Russia and Asia and Latin America over the last century, but we all fall for the exact same trap all the time. If only our ideas would win out, our concept of government, our model of comfort could take the stage. If only what we think life is about could finally take center stage. But the real Revolution takes place when the creator of all things takes on human flesh and speaks truth to power. But rather than outpower the powerful, this God allows himself to be crushed under the wheels of the world, not as some cosmic mismanagement, not some epic something's gone terribly wrong moment. No, this is the plan. This is the point. This is the revolution. But Jesus doesn't just give up his life to prove a point. 
He doesn't even do it just as a good example. He does it to break the enchantment that has been holding us captive to this world and its systems from day one. And he does it so that we can see, finally, the prison house that we confused all along for a palace. He does it to set us free from our need for power and wealth and comfort, from our need for empire, no matter how provincial or personal our empire may be, and to welcome us into his kingdom. As I said before, the response of Jesus to the questions of this tax is different from all the others. It's not hiding away from this world. That's not the right response. And it's not violently rebelling against this world. That's not his response either. And it's also not allegiance or collusion with the powers of this world. Rather, he enters into this world and begins to remake it, not rearrange it. Our revolutions are about rearranging. Jesus' revolution is about remaking. And one of the strange things about this kingdom is that the further in you come, And the more you begin to render unto Jesus the things that belong to him, the more engaged you will become in this world, not less. The political manifesto for the kingdom of Jesus is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for people who actually believe that they're living in that sort of kingdom, especially in the midst of an election year? It means that you'll no longer have to fear that your world will come to a screeching halt if the wrong guy gets elected because there is no person, no party, no system that could end this world or remake it. Only God's kingdom can do either of those things. And now, rather than just identifying with one side and vilifying the other, you can speak truth to power through a life lived in love And sacrifice because if you are in this kingdom, you are the image, the inscription, the propaganda of a king without a quarter. A king who doesn't avoid the world or revolt against it or give allegiance to it, but rather enters it penniless to bring love and life to undeserving people like us. Let's pray together. Jesus, inevitably, as your claims to the true rightful throne of this entire universe get spoken out loud and enacted, there will be a clash of wills. There will be a clash of empires. And so often, our first reaction is to think that we must fight, that we must overpower and outmaneuver. And yet your example to us is the exact opposite of that. I ask that as we come to your table to feed on your death, to feed on your body and your blood broken for us that your kingdom might once and for all break into this world and remake everything, that we ourselves would be remade, that we would be filled with humility and love for this world. We ask this in your name. Amen.